pomegranates are predominantly grown in Limpopo province and the Western Cape, and it's considered a profitable crop for new farmers to grow. And this week we share a guide to get started. Now with the country's foot and mouth disease cases skyrocketing, Dr. Peter Obram, Chief Executive at AfriVet, breaks down how we can better manage these outbreaks currently being dealt with in five provinces in Mzanzi. South Africa's cannabis boom has sparked a number of creative business ventures, and this week's Agripreneur 101 is one of them. We meet the founder of iCanna, Tumi Muloleko Mkomo, who creates a range of cannabis-infused edibles. Our book of the week is The 4-Hour Workweek by Timothy Ferris, and our Farmer Tip of the Week comes from Arne Farouf from Hemp Hub. This is Farmer's Inside Track, supported by Food for Mzansi. Inspiration for your business and life. From South Africa's farmers and agripreneurs. Hey, I'm Zanzi, and welcome to episode 123 of Farmers Inside Track. I'm your host, Dawn Numdu. Now we'll get straight into it with a promised guide to starting a pomegranate farm in Mzanzi. Nicole Ludolf chats to Louis Wanapool, owner of Ubali Pomegranate and Prickly Pear Farm. Thank you so much, Dawn. Louis, can you tell us a bit about how you started farming with pomegranates? We bought this farm about 11 years ago. I was initially a landscaper and started planting pomegranates and later prickly pears as a source of income on the farm. The farm was perfectly suited for it in terms of ground quality and availability of water. There was a demand in the market and specifically for the wonderful cultivar. And can you tell us a bit about pomegranate farming, please? You must at all times maintain your orchard, fertilize, do pest control, pruning and check irrigation regularly. Then it's over to Mother Nature to do the rest. A big reward is seeing the one-year-old pomegranate trees that we supply to farmers grow to fruit-bearing trees in two years and ultimately producing enough fruit to supply the local or the export market. Pomegranate cultivar that we are growing to Bali is a wonderful cultivar. Our main business is supplying trees to farmers and the general public and we use our trees on the farm as mother stock to cultivate these trees. Once a year we host a pomegranate festival over two weekends to sell all the fruit, juice and products from these pomegranates. We sell products like juices, jellies, jams, pomegranate, balsamic vinegar, reduction and air dried arrows. Ideal climate conditions are cool winters and hot summers, well-drained soil and a good source of water. Pomegranate season starts early March to mid-April. Every year, you are required to maintain these trees throughout the year to ensure a good crop. People wanting to plant pomegranates need to do their homework in terms of soil, water and climate because pomegranates will not bear fruit in all these regions. What about the market? What does the pomegranate market look like? There is a good market for pomegranates in Africa and for the export market, especially the wonderful cultivar. The cultivar is good for export because it lasts long in cool rooms and the fruit is sweet. At Tubali Farm, we sell all our trees and fruit and byproducts directly from the farm. Do you have any tips or pieces of advice for aspiring pomegranate farmers? Do your homework well. Your success will only be as good as your initial input when you grow pomegranates. Do everything right from the start and you will literally pick the fruits from your labor. Thanks, Nicole. And great having you, Louis Wanapool, owner of Ubali Pomegranate and Prickly Pear Farm. Now we move things over now from pomegranate farming to the ongoing cases of foot and mouth disease that's currently skyrocketing in Mzanzi. Dr. Peter Obram, Chief Executive at AfriVet, breaks down how we can better manage these outbreaks currently being dealt with in five different provinces in the country. Foot and mouth disease is described as a highly contagious viral disease in cloven-hooved animals and livestock. Dr. Peter Obram, how does it affect animals and commercial livestock in particular? 
Dawn, actually, that's a very interesting and a very good question. And in order to explain that, I'm going to kind of go back in history. This disease evolved thousands of years ago, began in buffalo. It's a viral disease of the African buffalo. They've evolved together, that is the buffalo and the virus, for quite a long time, as we've said, and hence they've adapted towards each other. So the buffalo nowadays show no symptoms whatsoever. They just carry the disease. They're asymptomatic. Impala, obviously, which have also been around a long time in Africa, and perhaps just to add a point there, it's an African disease which developed in buffalo to start with. Obviously, with the close association with other ruminants and other ungulates, ungulates being animals with cloven hooves, those wild animals generally also show very mild symptoms sometimes. I'm talking about things like impala. But they do replicate the virus, not to that efficient degree that the buffalo do. And they do sometimes show symptoms and they can be carriers and infect our cattle, for example. Similarly, indigenous African cattle. And that's an inverted commas indigenous because it depends how far back you go as to whether they're indigenous or not. But these animals have for centuries adapted and lived with buffalo and the disease. So the symptoms and the clinical signs they show are generally very mild, if any, sometimes. And that's actually a very important thing. But then if you talk about exotic cattle, cattle in Europe, cattle in North America, the imported dairy cattle that we farm with, they're highly susceptible, especially the dairy cattle, and totally have their milk production destroyed. So it's very important when you ask me the question, so is it important to commercial farmers? In one way, i.e. do the animals show really bad symptoms and signs? The answer generally is no, not in South Africa and not to the serotype that they call the SAT types. There's three of them, SAT1, SAT2, SAT3, which is the original progenitor virus that evolved here in Africa. And there are other strains, other serotypes that you find elsewhere in the world, A, O, and C. Our animals are not that well adapted to them because they evolved in Europe and China with the animals of those regions. So to say, is it important and does it affect commercial livestock? Symptom-wise, production-wise, not really. But because it is so severe and spread so very quickly, for example, in Europe, if it ever gets there again, the world system has been developed to control the disease. And this system severely limits trade. And if we then have an outbreak here that affects us enormously, not because of the symptoms or the damage the virus causes, but very specifically because of the control measures that are put in. Now, South Africa has also suffered repeated crises caused by the FMD outbreaks over the past 20 years. In fact, you've highlighted that it's perhaps more than any other Southern African country, with the exception of Zimbabwe. Why is this the case and what can we do to avoid these outbreaks? If you look historically at the outbreaks, they started again, they started in the early 1900s and there were slow increases in number. The reason why prior to 1930, there were no foot and mouth outbreaks for a while is because 
At the end of the 19th century, 1890s, we had a very severe epidemic of rinderpest, which came down from the north and spread down south until eventually in 1900, it got to Cape Town. Rinderpest affects the ruminants, including buffalo, and the buffalo population was nigh on eliminated, together with hunting and everything else that went with it. So there were very low numbers of buffalo. There was little contact between cattle and buffalo. And as a result, there was really no foot and mouth disease. But as buffalo numbers increased and contact with the cattle became more frequent, then from 1930s onwards, there was a very low incidence. And also very strict controls were put in place about movement of cattle, vaccination and everything else once there were a few cases. A turning point was in the 1980s when South Africa began producing its own vaccine. The reason that that's important is that just like we've seen with COVID, the new variants, which they now call Alpha, Beta and Delta, you get this antigenic drift. And with the antigenic drift, the vaccines become slightly less effective. So once in 1980, South Africa was able to do its own isolations and serotyping and was able to make its own vaccine, we saw a dramatic decline in numbers of outbreaks. Unfortunately, then in the early 90s, there were changes and the numbers have started to become more and more. It's probably only Zimbabwe that has more outbreaks than we have had in the recent times. How has losing international FMD free zone status impacted South Africa's agricultural industry? Well, it's absolutely severe. To give you an example, I think it was after the 2011 outbreak. That was the first one in recent times, and it was also in KwaZulu-Natal. And we really haven't had it back properly since then. But we lost our accreditation as being FMD-free in the FMD-free zone. Something like 700 game harvesters, i.e. people that harvest game for export, lost their jobs. Until today, they don't have their jobs back. I explained to you that 70% of our wool clip gets sold to China. And China, for a period, refused to accept wool from South Africa. You can imagine if suddenly 70% of our market for our really good product just disappears, it's an absolute disaster. And then, of course, meat exports are stopped. And meat export for us is a huge potential earner of foreign exchange. We don't export much at all at this stage, but we are capable of exporting 20% of our production which is very significant. It runs into billions of rands. And our meat is of superb quality. It's really of good standard. And our production costs are low. Our cost is roughly 30% less than the average world cost. So we could really earn a lot of forex, create a lot of jobs if we just focused on productivity and ensuring that our foot and mouth status is correct. Thanks for joining us here on Farmers Inside Track. Dr. Peter Obram, Chief Executive at AfriVet. For more updates on foot and mouth disease outbreaks, visit www.foodformzanzi.co.za. Now, I love our Agripreneur 101 slot, and this week we're talking all things cannabis. Our guest is Tumi Mololekomkomo. She has created a range of cannabis-infused edibles. Nicole Ludolf chats to her. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you started your business? I'm a mom 
did TV for about 12 or 13 years. I was a producer, I was a director, I did subtitling for TV shows at some point. And then when COVID hit, productions came to a halt. I was really bored because I'm somebody who likes to stay very busy. So I started thinking about what it is that I do enjoy doing just to occupy my time. And I realized that it's edibles, that I make edibles for my family and friends often. So I decided, let me do that for a bit. And it was helping quite a few of my friends and family because people are so stressed, you know, the anxiety of not knowing what's going on, what's going to happen, people losing things. So it seemed to help with the anxiety and things like that, you know, just to mellow them out and take the edge off. And then when I wasn't getting work, I just woke up with an idea one day, why not sell edibles? So I went online and did a bit of research in law and legislation and things like that. And I realized there isn't much in terms of regulation in that even the government themselves was really slow in the uptake with everything cannabis related. So there wasn't like clear legislation and things like that and bills still needed to be passed. And I spoke to my lawyer. He was just like, yeah, well, you know, these are the legalities behind it. They're not quite clear. Some of them are not quite clear. So I kind of was born and that's how it, it started really. Yeah, I'm based in, in Fairland. I work from home. So I'm based in the Randburg area, which is really neither here nor there because I don't have a physical shop. And for obvious reasons, I kind of people traipsing in and out of my house. I just use a courier service to have things delivered. I do ship nationwide. Are you somebody who also grows their own cannabis or is, do you source from a local person or how does it work? I don't grow my own because I live in a complex. I really don't have that kind of space. But I, I work with a grower out in Brits. So every week he'll deliver what I need to get production going, which will always be a lot less than what I actually need. We try to stay within the 1.2 kg regulation by law. So I can't keep a heck of a lot of weed in my house for legal reasons. I work with a grower. He grows his own different strains. So we're always trying out new strains and things like that. But yeah. I don't grow my own, I do have a grower. Can you tell me uh, maybe some of the challenges that you're facing in your business? What are the kind of blockers that you experience, if any? The challenges I've experienced is capital. I have so many ideas on on how I'd like to grow the business and the directions in which I'd like to take it. But it's just, just so expensive to set up that kind of thing from the lawyers that I'd need to have from property. The whole setup of it is really, really quite expensive and it's, it's capital that I don't have. And it's not like I can walk into a bank and be like, yeah, I'm a cannabis business and this is what I'd like because there's still a lot of conservative views, especially with big corporations, there's still a lot of conservative views on cannabis. So it's not something that banks would fund and people just don't have that kind of money to output to friends and family and that's My biggest challenge has also been, as much as I like to protect my customers, but there's really no protection for me. So there have been instances where I felt a little harassed by people, but there's nowhere to report it. Because again, people don't understand how cannabis isn't just that thing that you do in a backyard alley, but it's actually a ritual. It's actually a lifestyle. It's actually has so many, it's such a dynamic plant. But people still have very backward views on it. So it's very difficult to report some of these things that happen. Because where do I go? So the sooner that the government gets their act together and actually puts clear legislation in place for cannabis dealers, for people like me who make so many different products out of cannabis, if there's clear legislation, we become more protected because right now we're just really flapping in the breeze and, you know, waiting for people to figure out what we're doing. And it leaves us quite exposed at times. So what keeps you then inspired or motivated to continue with the business? 
I actually love what I do. That's what keeps me going. That's what keeps me motivated. I've built a customer base that is more than just my customers. Some have become my friends. Some have become my baby sisters. It's so many different people that I come into contact with. And I've been blessed with the most kind group of people that buy from me and in so many different ways. When I wasn't feeling well, people would check up on me. Are you doing okay? Is there anything you need? I have people send me food. It's become community and interacting with other cannabis dealers who a lot of Black women, thank God, that have taken it up as a business. And it's just that sense of community that I've got my sisters. <laughs> we're going to do this and we're doing this together. And there's so much love in the cannabis industry and so much love with our customers that it's hard not to keep going. Thanks, Nicole. And great having you, Tumi Rolekomkomo the founder of iCanna, an agribusiness supplying a range of cannabis-infused edibles. Next up, and before we let you go, is our book of the week, The 4-Hour Workweek by Timothy Ferris. In early 2004, I was working from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. across multiple time zones. So I'd wake up, I'd do East Coast and the UK, then I'd do Pacific, then I'd later do Japan and Australasia. And a long-term girlfriend at the time actually broke up with me because of that schedule. She never saw me. And the parting gift that she gave me, her version of a, a Dear John letter, was it wasn't so much a plaque as one of these photo holders that you can see at Target folds out, it's made out of metal, and it said work hours end at five. And she said, I want you to have this as a memento. And that really, I think, brought into focus one of the, the core assumptions and premises of how I live in the book, which is that income has no practical value, lifestyle output value, without time. And that was what really catalyzed looking at the business and redesigning it or shutting it down depending on if it could be compatible with some type of lifestyle. And it was at that point that I decided to take four weeks in London, because I think it is very helpful to change environments, to remove yourself from a certain set of habits and a certain schedule, to deconstruct this business and remove all the unnecessary pieces and automate as much as possible. That four weeks led me to test one major issue that I had been facing, which was email. So email, as I'm sure most people are aware, has turned into more of a, a problem in many cases than help. And uh, so I'd been checking email you know, 100 plus times a day, like a, a rat with the cocaine pellet dispenser. But I set this one rule, which was in order to avoid that reactive type of behavior, that I would check email once per week for no more than two hours per week. That was the rule. So I had to do that on Mondays and Mondays alone. And I had to design everything else, whether that's using autoresponders or outsourcing, uh, filtering the email to accommodate that. And that worked for those four weeks. So I simply stayed out of the U.S. and it turned into 18 months that took me from you know, anywhere from uh, Berlin to Panama to later on in Argentina and had no intention of writing the book. But that's how all this came about. Agriculture is not just about farming. It's about caring, and that's an ideal worth preserving. Right through all departments and companies within the VKB Group, we know that farming is not just a job, it's a way of life. Let VKB help you in all aspects of the food value chain by efficiently reducing costs and optimizing value. Follow VKB on Facebook or vkb.co.za to find out how VKB can help you. VKB, for the love of the land. Sounds like a must read for me. Now remember, if you'd like to review a book or you have a book suggestion, feel free to email us at info at foodformzanzi.co.za. 
Now, before we let you go, our farmer tip of the week as well is from Arne Farouf from Hemp Hub. He talks about all things you need to know when it comes to cannabis production. For hemp cultivation, you've secured your market, you've gotten your license. Now it's time to get down to growing some hemp. The first thing that you want to do is decide what you want to grow for. Grow the crop for a purpose. There's 10,001 things that you can do with hemp. Your job is to grow a product for market. Focus on growing one part well, whether that's fiber, grain, or even the flowers, and then treat the rest as substreams and waste to find secondary markets for. Grow one thing really good. If you chase two rabbits, you're not going to catch any. You need to get your hands on as many varieties as possible to evaluate for your area. Hemp, cannabis in general, is a very adaptable plant, but they all perform differently in different environments. And you need to find the one that works for your area and your particular purpose. Grow out small parcels of these different varieties and then for the following seasons, choose the ones that perform the best. To grow hemp, you need a very fine seedbed good land preparation and preferably have a nice loamy free draining soil. Water logging is one of the main killers for hemp seedlings but they are also prone to being outcompeted by weeds if seedbed preparation was not ideal. Make sure there's enough nutrients in the soil especially in the early stages hemp requires a lot of nitrogen but it also requires decent amounts of both phosphorus and potassium. Potassium obviously being an oilseed crop is very critical for later stages of flowering and then seed production. Growing hemp is not difficult. We don't call it a weed for nothing, but growing good hemp and growing marketable hemp is much more challenging, further compounded by the requirements of licensing and then finding reliable market. Our Farmer Tip of the Week by Arne Farouf from Hemp Hub brings us to the end of another exciting episode. Remember, if you love this podcast, please rate it and share it with your friends, family members and fellow farmers. And be sure to check out our sister publication called foodforafrica.com for inspiration and news from across the continent. Do follow us on social media as well. That's Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to catch our weekly sessions on all things farming on Gather to Grow on Twitter Spaces. From me, Don Numdu, our producer, Megan van der Vent, and the rest of the Food from Zanzi team, have an awesome, awesome weekend. Bye for now. Life in South Africa can be a lot. I mean, scroll through Twitter for a minute and tell me I'm wrong. Thank God for South Africans, though, right? We're inspiring, and even on the bad days, we fight back with a smile. That's why I love Food from Zanzi so much. They're not ashamed to celebrate the ordinary unsung heroes who work every day to put food on our nation's tables. Go to foodformzanzi.co.za and never miss an inspiring story.